Alright, so what's the worst movie you've ever seen in the cinema? Worst movie I've ever seen in the cinema? Yeah, the worst time like you've ever had in the cinema. The worst film you've ever seen. <sighs> Fuck, that's a tough question. It's a very loaded question. Because it could be a bad time at the cinema itself, or it could be the film you just thought was crap, or, you know. I've got two. I've got two in mind, so I'm gonna, I'll am gonna. i go first and give you a title think. Exactly. Right. You start us off. The first one was back in the days where I was working at Taylor Performance, and I was doing the the uh, the, the movie blog. I've forgotten the name of it now. What was my review blog called? Tr- Truff Reviews. Oh, <laughs> I forgot the name of that. Um, so I went to the cinema a lot myself back at that time, because I had like nothing else to do. Yeah, apart only wee guy. I was a lonely guy, but so I decided to go to like a one o'clock in the afternoon showing of Warcraft at the Odeon. <laughs> so I go in, I'm like tired, like no really wanting to be there, but I'm like, okay, I'll do a review on it, so whatever. But I go in and I sit down and subtitles start coming on. <laughs> so that's one thing I'm just like, oh, if I went to like the Hedon impaired show and no wonder anyone else, no one else is here. Like it's one of the only times I've been the only person in a cinema to see a movie. Like, I had the entire screen into myself. Like, it was so sad and lonely. But the movie was shit as well, so it kind of just added, like, to all this, like, negative experience. The other one I seen last year that I just hated, I went with Nikki. And it was like, a, it should have been good. I went to see the Odin at the Key. They have the recliner seats. I got myself a wee, a wee Fanta Ice Blast, you know? Uh, and we went to see Phantom Fred, uh, the Daniel Day-Lewis one. And I've just never been so bored slash irritated by the plot of a film in my life like I genuinely wanted to hack my arm off to have an excuse to leave <laughs> like you know just so I could start bleeding out and they're like oh you need to go to the hospital and I'm like thank fuck I can leave this cinema <laughs> I, I can just like fucking go away so I was happy with that so those are the two that I'd say are by far the worst like I hate talking in the cinema but usually like I just scream at them to shut up and get stared at for a second and then it's fixed you know so like that doesn't usually ruin it for me not get on i've only actually sh- i've only actually shouted at someone once uh, for not even shouted i shouted at one person yeah well two people it was blade runner 2049 and it was me and these two like 15 old lassies and they were up the back talking like what even is this what even is this like for the first 10 minutes of the movie clearly not knowing what they're coming to see so eventually i was just like i just looked behind and just went just to leave and they got up and they, <laughs> <laughs> they walked out of the cinema <laughs> it was so funny what about you what's the worst um, uh well the only one i can really think of um that was particularly bad as an experience, less so the movie, but um, when I was in America, there was a, uh, there's a cinema called something Tavern, I can't even remember the name, I think it was like Toby's Tavern, I'm stupid like that, right? And it's like a... Is this in Fort Worth? Or? It's in Fort Worth, yeah, so it's one of these places where you, you can like have like a sit-down meal where we're having a movie, so that we watch the class, a wee bench in front of you, like menus there, someone comes in to each other, but that is kind of... Was a bit of a problem, like so. Like the movie's literally about to start, mm-hmm. like kind of onto the trailers and stuff, and you're obviously like trying to get in the, you know, trying to get comfy, trying to like you know get yourself sorted. Out and you that, get, and, get yourself sorted out, get yourself hyped. You know, what I, mean? I, all you can hear is this guy like people whispering, like, oh, what, do you, "What do you want? What do you want?" Like to the next person. <laughs> <laughs> so, like, you have to do that like around the whole cinema right before the, the movie's about to start. 
Right, so you take you take your order, whatever, but like at this point we were already steaming because we've been we got there early and like there's a bar at the like the like, kind of lobby bit. So we had had a few drinks anyway. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, we was already a bit kinda distracted would be the word maybe. Like get a bit of steam and that and then we came in start whispering and there's people sitting there in front of us and they're late and then they're like, Oh, can we get our order taken? And like fucking I uh, just couldn't you couldn't write it anyway, so the movie starts and it's black mass. Um, so I don't know if you've ever seen Black Mass, but it wasn't very good. So uh, <laughs> on top of that, fucking all the whispering, people coming in with their food, like fucking, 15, it's like 15, 20 minutes into the movie, and then obviously like, they come in with the food and that. It just was such a disturbance. Like, this was a, this was the second time we'd been there, but the first time we went, we never ordered food, and it was like quite a quiet cinema like, at the time. There wasn't like a lot of people going. But this time, it was fucking packed, and like we'd order we'd, every single one of us. I think there was about six of us there had ordered food. So we had to wait for it to come out, and you're not even you're not even thinking about the movie. You're like thinking, where the fuck's this food now? Yeah, it's like you know, like trying to get the movie, and then they eventually come out, and then you're like trying to eat and watch, and everyone else just get their food, and the people in front of you were fucking. Yeah, I think I'd hate that. I think I'd hate that more if it was like something I was excited to see, and you'd thought this would like be a great thing. Like if I was going to a Star Wars film, for example, and I was like, oh, we'll get the VIP experience, we'll get to order food during the movie, and then I'll get there and realise the reality of the situation that you're talking about. You know, yeah. where like there's people constantly walking about, and like the fact that you're waiting on your food, like, and that's in your back of your mind. Like you can't completely get lost in the film. I'm guessing. You know what I mean? Like that sounds like what the problem is. Uh, but then, like the idea of like having to obviously you're kind of looking at what you're eating. If that makes sense. I know, I know that sounds stupid, but like you know, you're obviously distracted from the movie by like having to cut up whatever you're eating or like big bit of chicken, big chicken breasts just sitting there. Plate. That's me. Stuff. It's things like because you're fucking. Uh, you're trying to try to have a scan. And then there's someone like chewing mashed potatoes in your ear behind you as you're trying to listen. Like what the fuck, you know? But this is why. There's a whole fucking cinema full of people just fucking chewing and munching and crunching. <laughs> Fuming, man. Anyway, the movie was tight anyway, so it didn't really make that much of a difference, but... Yeah, that's fair, that's fair. Uh, as, as far as the cinema experiences go, man, that's... That's, uh, doing the fucking... It's doing the ladder. Well, we hear it first-time films, so we don't hate food in general. In fact, one particular restaurant we love is Danny's Diner in Erskine. And if you want to tell them to sponsor us, uh, that would be absolutely fantastic. Yeah, that would be absolutely fine. Yeah, that would be great. <laughs> We've still not replied to my message. Uh, so, <laughs> we are the First Time Films podcast, uh, where we take a film that one of us hasn't seen. We talk about it every week and we discuss like other news in the world of film and television as well. Uh, you can check out our back catalogue on Spotify and iTunes and give us a follow on Twitter. Uh, on Give us a wee like on Facebook and uh, follow us on Instagram as well. And if you listen to this episode you like it, be sure to like and share. That'd be fantastic. Um, today I'm joined by Jack Higgins once again. Hello. Hello. Yes, uh, Nicky couldn't be here today. However, this was his film that he picked. Um, he seems to do that a lot. Like it seems to be he'll pick a movie that he's absolutely buzzing for, and then like he can't he can't be on the show, and it's just like so sad because like you can tell he's like actually going to be happy, and then like the world just doesn't want him to be happy about a film. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's like the universe just doesn't work in that way. So today we're going to be talking about 1980s The Shining, uh, directed by Stanley Kubrick, red legendary director. Uh, and co-written by him uh, with his friend, the novelist Diane Johnston. Obviously, it was based in the novel of the same name, written by horror icon Stephen King, which was released, I think, three years earlier. 
Um, it stars Jack Nicholson and Shelley Javel as uh, the Torrances, a couple who move with their son into the abandoned Overlook Hotel um, as the caretakers uh, for the off-season. Um, supernatural shit starts to go down, and that's basically <laughs> how I can sum up the plot. Like Jack Torrance starts to go a bit insane, and uh, it's about the descent into madness of one man. Uh, it made 44.4 million uh, in the United States and a 19 million dollar budget, so it wasn't too, too profitable, but this type of movie back then sort of really was, uh, I think, it got 86% in Rotten Tomatoes. We asked on Facebook uh, for a thumbs up and thumbs down. I just wanted to say last week I thought Good Will Hunting was our first 100%, but I didn't check right before we recorded that someone gave it a thumbs down. So. As of right now, we're still waiting for our first 100% movie from the fans, but this came close. 95% thumbs up on Facebook, 5% thumbs down. Uh, and fan Caroline Gardner actually commented that she would have given it three thumbs up if she could have. So, <laughs> uh, on Twitter, um, I was interested to actually see because there's a lot of big movies, like big well-known movies that a lot of people claim to have seen or haven't, like, <laughs> actually haven't seen. Uh, like, I think I did this once with Nicky in The Shining, like, about three, four years ago, and, and regret it. Because he told, I said to him I hadn't seen it, like, this week. And uh, he was, like, pure surprised by it. He was like, really? I thought you had. And I was like, I'm pretty sure, like, I lied to you, like, three years ago about the fact that I'd seen The Shining, just to try and impress you. <laughs> like, <laughs> I, 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 thought you I thought you had seen it as well. I, I, and I thought, uh, recently we were discussing it. Not even discussing it, like, in depth, but just, like, discussing it. And you knew like enough about it, so you could have probably just filled us all. Yeah, um, I seen like this I, is. I, I was gonna say, I think you seen. I thought I thought you said you seen maybe even like parts of it or like mm-hmm. the scenes in it. Like Joe was playing it at his flat uh, one day, and I seen like ten minutes of it when he was getting changed to, to go to a party. Uh, um, that's as much as I've seen, but I'll, I know a lot of background. If you take the movie out of context and you watch 10 minute, minutes of it, you're probably like, what the fuck is going on? I know, I know. Well, anyway, 58% of people on Twitter said they'd seen it, 42% said they had it, so it's quite it's quite an even uh, split. Um, I'll ask you, you've seen this movie before. I to ask, so... <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, I'll ask, I'll ask the audience. Uh, I'll ask you, you've never seen this movie before. What? Uh, I've seen it before. Oh, you had no, Sorry, it's early in the morning we're recording this. Like, I mean, just in context, I mean, oh, had you seen it? Oh, yeah. <laughs> I don't even know. My brain just had a, a fart there. Anyway, I've seen it a few times now. But... The, sh- the Shine in generally, uh, what's your thoughts on it? I think class. I think it's it's the the horror that I like. It's the mm-hmm. that it's not. I don't even know. It's not even horror to me, really. But it's different um, and if it's going to be classed as horror I would, it would fall under the bracket of like horror movies that um, make less sense maybe but make more like uh, I don't know it makes, it yeah. more, makes it more scary for me like uh, the music uh, particularly for me the fucking the weird like sort of flashy scenes you know like they just kind of it's like a, a snippet of like a scene or like a flash of a scene scarier to me than, than like you know like a direct shot of like a demon or something for like five seconds you know yeah uh, and i think it falls under the bracket of like the uncanny or something like uh, that like that sort of description very sort of gothic um in the terms of it's not in your face slasher horror which obviously you said you had a problem with with halloween and it's not that sort of typical haunted house horror we get with, with the conjuring uh, you're right. What struck me most about this movie, to be honest with you, and one of the things I was so 
surprised by was how modern it seemed. Um, and I can see the influence of the Shining movie if we're talking about the context of 2019. Like we got one of my favourite movies of last year was Hereditary, and we've had movies coming out uh, in the last couple of years uh, like uh, The Witch, uh, which are these horror movies that aren't relying on jump scares, they're more relying on sort of strong character-driven stories as well as a very interesting plot that's that's scary, but it's more it's more in the sort of creepy and like you say, it's the intrigue. Uh, behind it and how uh, they don't uh, explain everything in full, you know? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I've watched The Shining now probably four or five times and I still don't really understand, like, where everyone falls into place, you know? Like, mm-hmm. there's, there's all this sort of supernatural stuff happening. There's obviously some sort of, like, I'll obviously use the word curse loosely, right, because it's not like a curse, but, like, you know, in that sort of regard, there's obviously something going on with the hotel that's that's warping the mind of the caretaker or warping the mind of maybe someone who's the most vulnerable or someone who's the, do you know what I mean? Yeah. But then there's also this element of what is the sh- like the shining itself is this gift or whatever, you know? So there's there's actually two separate things in the movie. There's two separate like I don't know, forces, like supernatural forces in the in the film. One is the the one that's corrupting the mind of Jack Torrance, and then there's The Shining, which is this gift, which is, and they seem to be related, you know, but at the same time they're separate, they're not, because it could have easily been like the person with The Shining that is that is getting corrupted, and then that would have made sense because it's this one this one force, like it's all to do with The Shining, but, but the fact that it's, there's two, there's two different things going on. Yeah, and I want to, I want to talk about specifically the fact it's, it's Jack Torrance, the father, who's the one to sort of be driven insane by the hotel or is he already a bad man who's on the verge of a break it's never really that's what I like about the way they set up Jack's character is before we even get to him going to the hotel yeah like but it's also we get the news that about the 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 boy with the arm uh, and the sort of uh, the problem with the alcohol and stuff like that and then that all sort of comes into play so we get this picture of Jack, uh, Jack Torrance where we're not sure if we're being told the sort of full story about him. You know what I mean? Um, yeah. And Jack Nicholson, I always go to call him Jack Nicholas, but that's the golfer. But, but Jack Nicholson, uh, it, like, he's very much Jack Nicholson in this movie. He just does like the same thing he does in everything, like One Floor Over the Cuckoo's Nest and stuff like that. But yeah. do you think it was effective? Like, because for me, it was very theatrical at times, and it's hard to sort of buy into. Um, but overall, I think it worked in the sort of context of the film. What? Sorry, by any what? Sorry, his performance. Oh no, no, I thought his performance was class. I thought. Uh, it was kind of shades of Joker to me, though. Like it's, it's shades of his Joker. Like you can see those those elements. Joker after it. So uh, was Joker after it? One. Uh, it was like. Yes, no, Joker was. Some problem. No, it was nine years after this. The Batman nineteen eighty nine. Yeah. The, was when he played the Joker. So nine years after this performance, he's already yeah. sort of established that. Yeah, I think you can, yeah you can see that he's taken elements of what he's done in this movie, like the facial expressions. The there is a real ins, like streak of insanity in him. Uh, like just I think even just his face in general. Uh, at that age, I think when he's, as he's got older, he's got like less. I don't know. He has the ability to look less scary now. 
but just with his eyebrows at that age, like you know he's younger and stuff and like the, the, the surprise he can do in his face and the, the way he can change his face um, I think it, it suited the character in this but also like the joke on everything I was every time I've watched this I, I see the same see the same things in him uh, mm-hmm. that's the joker as well um, yeah I think it, but is that over the top sort of yeah. a, a performance that is going to be sort of hit or miss like uh, it works in The Departed because that's that sort of film as well. But for me, sometimes it can get a bit hokey when we go into something like One Floor Over the Cuckoo's Nest one, just like I wish you would just dial it back a wee bit. Like he's a very much loose cannon. This is class, you talking about? Like he's fucking unreal in that. But I think that that is like just a. I think that's more a, a tale of uh, of him, Jack Nicholson, not of the characters. I think like he just mm-hmm. wanted to give everything to these characters and and in the most cases like all of these characters do have that like are either over the top or like overly aggressive or overly fucking i don't know uh just strange you know like, over, over cuckoo's nest like the story behind it it's such a far-fetched story like imagine pretending to be you know insane but then like i don't think you could have got anyone else to to portray that like a man pretending to be insane if that makes sense rather yeah. than being insane <laughs> and he, he, he progresses he progresses and he's insanity in this movie very well I think like to be honest like he starts off sort of reserved and normal uh, for lack of a better term and you see that sort of darkness suddenly sort of come into the fold when he's writing and the staring out the window his wife and child in the snow sort of that that really struck me as really freaky yeah. like he, definitely he just looked ill by this point it didn't look Looked like there was something seriously wrong now. There was like something sick in him. Where he's, uh, yeah, probably. I mean, you don't see that's the thing, like, you don't see any of his thoughts or anything like that. You don't really know what he's thinking, but you can tell, you know, there's obviously there's something corrupting him. Uh, and what do you what do you think that is? We'll get into the sort of uh, in universe stuff of the Shining just now because I have a theory. I was sort of trying to formulate it in my mind. I know, that. the end, where it's just like panning into the, um, it's like zooming into the, the photograph. Yeah. Um, 1921 or something. I think it is, yeah. 1921 uh, or 1912, one of the two. Yeah. Um, and yeah, that, that, that for me makes it more confusing. Like, I think people start to make up their own ideas about what, what it actually means, like maybe what is the shining and what is this? Maybe the cost is, is it related to the shining? Like, um, but then when you see the photo, to me, it, it makes it far more confusing. I'm just like, fuck, does he, did he live? Was he alive back then? Has he just been? Has he added his place in history? Has he? Do you know what I mean? Like, what is it? Represent. Uh, the way uh, the way I took it was uh, sort uh, of Pirates, Pirates of the Caribbean, sort of. Uh, <laughs> Dave, Davy Jones ship sort of he's become part of the hotel so yeah. he's like always been there like so it's not that he was in there like previously in 1921 or whatever but now he's sort of become the, the hotel has claimed Jack Torrance as his own yeah as, the, as its own you know what I mean so that's that's kind of what I got from it that all of this is coming from the hotel itself and it's the hotel and it's the sort of it's co- a combination of the cabin fever uh, environment that's set up like so he could have been going insane even without these supernatural forces but the hotel is such a, a dark entity that it sort of tries to claim people's souls like for itself you know yeah so, nah, I would agree with that that's, that's even with the 
photograph, even though I was inconclusive and it was like making it, it made it more confusing. That kind of was thinking something along the similar lines as you there. Like it's like he's now he's added his place in history, like with the hotel. Um, but uh, the thing is, like the whole that whole party thing was always the bit that that confused me a little bit because it went from being like only Jack could see all these people, you know, like when he when he first goes and, and he sees Lloyd the barman and he's speaking to Lloyd and you know he's saying like oh this one's in the house and he's drinking and that you're obviously like, okay well he's a recovering alcoholic so he's having a drink and he's sort of falling back into that. Alcoholism. Mm-hmm. Okay, is this all in his head? So all these people are all in his head, and that. But then, like later on in the movie, you see how closely related, like this party is to even what Danny's seen. You know, like what the people with the shining can see. All these, like you know, the blood uh, streaming out of the elevator has to do with the party. And like um, later on, um, Wendy Torrance sees. Uh, the man standing there with a the cocktail glass and the, and the split open head and that as well, but then she can see them. So I'm like, where's, where is the, like, where is the line between reality and, and you know, a, a sort of fantasy? Um, yeah, I thought it was all Jack's fantasy. Like I thought it was because he's drinking again and you know, he, or he's needing a drink. So like he starts to sort of enter this wee fantasy world where he's he's able to get a drink and with obviously going on with this, uh, going in line with this curse that's sort of on the hotel it's forcing them you know it's forcing these men to, to corrupt but the fact that Danny can see it makes makes it more confusing because I'm like right well Danny's got this this um, ability yeah he thinks and makes him you know witness things see things from the past see things sort of in the future as well and Danny's the freakiest part of the movie for me earlier on. See, even the first uh, time that we get the Tony voice and it's the, the camera outside the room panning in to Danny in the toilet talking to himself, uh, like talking to Tony. Rather, who Tony is, we, we actually never find out if it's like a spirit he's con- uh, caught conversing with or it's another fragment of his personality. Like, that, it really freaks me out. But the voice he does for that, for such a child act, is so subtly terrifying that I'm just like, oh. Yeah. Oh, that's what he's doing, Red Ram. That's really... Fuck. That's, that's um, nightmare fuel. Uh, it's, it's an iconic thing now, I think. That, well, it was one of the more, more iconic... That and obviously, like, here's Johnny. Um, yeah. Two the kind of main quotes and also the two main sort of uh, scenes in the movie that, like, obviously resonate with the majority of the people who have seen it. Yeah, and, and I wanted to talk about uh, th- talk about things that resonate. Um, there's a lot, even if you haven't seen The Shining, uh, like uh, you sort of talked about with me, even though I hadn't seen The Shining, there's a lot of iconic images that you know from this movie without seeing it. You've got Danny going down the hall on his tricycle. You've got Danny running into twins on the tricycle. You've got the blood flowing out of the elevator. Uh, you've got the Here's Johnny moment with the, the axe going through. Even the aesthetic of the Overlook Hotel without having seen The Shining, you could probably identify. Um, and that obviously all comes down to uh, Kubrick, the director, uh, who sadly passed away in the early 2000s uh, after his last film, which I believe was Eyes Wide Shut with Nicole Kidman and Tom Cruise, I think it was. Um, he apparently the background to him making this movie was that he was looking for a film to do after Barry Lyndon and he said in an interview uh, that he wanted to do 
a horror movie he wanted to explore horror so what he did was the story is the urban legend uh, is sort of contested whether this actually happened he got a number of horror horror books and he was reading them in his office and his secretary could be seen to hear him like tossing the books against the wall if he didn't like them after like five pages so <laughs> all she'd hear all day is like a thump like against the book at the wall like a thump and then one day uh, she heard the thump and stop and she went in and Stanley Kubrick was reading the copy of The Shining and was very pleased with it. Uh, and that's how the story goes that, you know, he adapted uh, The Shining screenplay, got his friend uh, on to help him, the novelist Diane Johnston, uh, and they set about making this movie. Um, now, before I get into like the sort of differences from the novel that have been sort of uh, went around over years and made Stephen King very angry, um, the cinematographer, on this movie, uh, I'll try and get his, I'll try and get his name now because I had it earlier on, and now I've lost it. Uh, well, the cinematographer in this movie, what's up? It's John Alcott, I think. But John Alcott, he was very sort of heavily praised for the look of this film. Uh, but I seen an interview with him as well, and basically it was like everyone was praising me for my work in this movie. But Stanley Kubrick has such a singular vision that there's not much room for me to do apart from just sort of getting done what he tells me, you know. So it was a very easy job for him, was what he was saying, and that, that's basically what we what talk about is the issue of authorship uh, or sort of or tourism in film, like the difference between going to a Marvel movie, and we talked about with James Gunn, he manages to make his own movie inside the sandbox, and a film like this which is very much just a Stanley Kubrick film, you know? Like, what is the difference? Like, what do you think? You watch this movie, you can tell it's a Stanley Kubrick movie. Uh-huh. Uh, like, do, do you think we're missing that in cinema nowadays, to a certain degree? Uh, do you mean particularly with directors? Like, yeah, directors that, yeah, like directors and having the sort of directors out there whose style we can sort of easily identify and sort of connect to. I think for me, more recently, because because I've only really had like took an interest in direct like who directs a film like before, I would never really have cared. I've not even probably even looked up um, to see who directed it. But now because I have taken more of an interest, I've noticed it more. You know, like even, even watching The Shining. Um, I was watching it recently and going, oh, it's very Kubrick, you know what I mean? And I, and yeah. I wouldn't, it was very Kubrick, Kubrick recently, uh, until recently, sorry, because I, until now I haven't really taken that much of an interest in it. So uh, I think it's harder to differentiate now because it's a very modern style to to most movies. Like everything, not that everything's the same, but like there's only probably only like a top 10 uh, directors that have maybe claimed their own style, I'd say. Yeah. Um, I can't even really name any of them, but I would. But Tarantino is more the sort of dialogue, like rather than the set, like the sort of cinematography of it. I'd say, like, he loves the seventy millimeter and stuff, but I'd say his movies are more identifiable from the dialogue. Sort of same thing with uh, Martin Scorsese. The only, the two, in fact, the one who I'd say has the most clear visual style. Uh, that we're going to talk about in a couple of weeks is probably while well, he's not my favourite director is in fact two Christopher Nolan I'd say definitely has a very unique visual style that makes his movies easily identifiable I'd also say David Fincher purely because of the sort of colour palette of his movies are usually 
very very dark and like you know but uh, and that's what I like what I like about Kubrick here is like he really is a master of the sort of cinematic language you know like the the, the distance that he uses between the subject and the camera at times to tell a story like when we need to be away from Jack Torrance we are looking at things from afar we are when we need to be up close and personal when he's getting in like when he's hacking down the doors right in his face we're there you know those dolly shots as we track them going through the hall the, 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 the corridors that they overlook so we can see this beautiful surrounding they're in how big it is the scale of it and how very much alone they're going to be like even even the title sequence like showing like for a good four minutes like this car just going further and further into the wilderness, you know? And it's an overhead shot, so you see the scale of how much nothing's around. Like, he, he totally gets, like, the dis- like how to use the camera, how to use the shot to tell a story without saying yeah. a single word. Uh, you know, and it, it's beautiful. It's a very beautiful <laughs> thing. Uh, you know, it makes me cry. I'm just, I'm just getting emotional here. Because uh, you can't top that. Like that's that's the problem. Like that that sort of that sort of instinct can't be beaten. I don't think you know. Like even for it's me, funny. it's funny. Like just listening to like obviously how passionate uh, you are about it. But like it's interesting for me to listen to because you know I do have a similar interest in it now. But as I said, like you know, five five years ago I wouldn't have really cared. I wouldn't have been look, looking at a movie going like. You know why? Why is he? Why is he got that shot from so high? Like why? Why is he trying to portray this? And I wouldn't even. It wouldn't even have clicked to me. Like that is what he's trying to do. And I don't think it would to most people who aren't in the film or who aren't in the even direction. It's um, it's the sort of thing though. Do they not know it, or is it sort of subconscious? Like because obviously subconscious. I think that's 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 the beauty of film. Like it's it's all subconscious unless you unless you have an interest in it. You know because you're not. If you're not studying it, um, or at taking an interest in it, then you're not you're not picking up on all these wee things, these wee uh, directing tips or these wee directing styles. Um, yeah. That's what I'm saying. It's just interesting to hear you talk about it so passionately because, like, you're right. And I, and you know that particular scene wasn't one that I was thinking of, like the first scene, uh, the title scene. But um, you're you're spot on. Like they do they do portray. Sorry, he does portray like a like a really, really remote area with uh, the scale of like the forest uh, and like the mountains and it's obviously, not only is it remote, it's just like the, with the weather being so bad and stuff as well, like later on in the movie. Definitely. Just, you know, it just sets it up to be, um, well, yeah, just terrifying. Really. Yeah, it's the story of isolation and you get that like, from the very uh, beginning. The idea of isolation is, is, is scary enough. Um, <laughs> Because anything can go wrong, and it's a movie, so you never know really. You never really know what's going to happen, unless, of course, you've read the book. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> like, uh, what's interesting for me is again talk, talking about like um, Halloween and whatever else. Like, what what Nikki likes in a in a horror film is the fact that it's like real horror again to me. This is this is like a a, a plus, um, and probably another reason why I like The Shining more than I do. Maybe some of the more modern horror films, uh, where 
where I have like demons and ghosts and whatever. I feel like this area because it's again like real people. Um, there is supernatural elements, obviously. Like they don't have fucking psychics and that, but just even to to throw something in like that because it's not even like I think the fact that Danny's a child. Um, it, you know, it, it, it what's the word? It kind of. It weakens him a bit, if that makes sense. Yeah, he's more vulnerable. If this was a if this was a, a, a male, um, like I don't know, middle aged male. Yeah. Uh, well, we're, we're getting that. We're getting that. Uh, we're getting the sequel. There's a sequel to the book. Yeah, there's a sequel to the book um, that is getting filmed, and it's Danny Torrance when he's an adult. Uh, like sort of 25 years later and Ewan McGregor's been cast as Daddy, Danny Torrance oh mate that's class Nicky's gonna fucking spunk his pants <laughs> I know like one of his favourite movies and then his favourite actor aye uh, that's unreal a bit of a good one that's a shame like I can't I, I do have an issue with like fucking huge periods of time between uh like a sequel uh, between like a original and a sequel well, it's not a sequel to the movie. That's the important uh, thing to remember, is that because of the, the key differences between the text of the novel and the text of the film, it has to be considered a sequel to, an adaption of the sequel to the novel and not a direct sequel to Kubrick's Shining, if that makes sense. Aye, aye. Of so, course. Um, that's one thing I wanted to get into to wrap up this sort of Shining discussion, is this issue of adaptation. Um, and does the filmmaker have a responsibility to the original text of a novel or a comic book? We get a lot of this with the discussion of comic book movies. Um, to adapt it truthfully and sort of exactly, uh, Roald Dahl famously hated uh, the movie adaptation of The Witches because it added in a sort of happier ending or a clearer happier ending. Um, and Stephen King has been sort of vocal uh, and his hatred for this movie, saying that it changed a lot of the themes that he thought were present in his in his novel. Um, it changes the ending. It takes a lot of explanation about the history of the Overlook Hotel itself that may give a lot more context. I don't want to spoil too much specifically in case anyone wants to go and read The Shining book, which I actually might go and do because I'm very interested in it now, having seen the movie, what those specific differences were. Um, but a more sort of general question... Uh, we can talk Stephen King adaptations another day because I'd like to do it. I'd like to visit the It movie that came out two years ago when It Chapter Two comes out later in the year. So I think we'll save that discussion for another time. But do you think that a filmmaker has a responsibility to preserve um, what has been featured in the sort of cortex, like a novel or a comic book, or do you think they should be given free reign once they choose to adapt this story? to put it their way on screen and to tell their version of the events. Uh, I don't know, I'm kind of somewhere in between that. I think there's obviously not even like a responsibility. It's not even, it's more like out of respect. I think you would just, you, you're obviously adapting it. So if you're going to read the book and you've liked, if you've you've obviously liked the, the novel, for the most part, you've probably liked the novel unless you hate it and you go, right, I'm going to change it. A different argument, but I think you just need to give a bit of respect to the person who's written this. They have this idea, they have created this idea. See, so it would be wrong for you to take it and ruin it. Um, so I understand um, Rodal and, and Stephen King's 
arguments there where there's obviously things that are missed out. I, th- I think J.K. Rowling feels the same uh, for the for the most part of the majority. Um, that's that's very that's, that's very that, different though because she was very heavily involved in the making of those movies and that's one of the negotiations she made, obviously with Warner Brothers at the time. Yeah, but I can't. Oh, negotiations is the is the key word there. I, mean, I imagine she had to give up some things to get some other things, you know. Yeah, true. Uh, she does have a very good working relationship with uh, yeah. Yates, though specifically. I think in the later movies she got a lot of her own way because of uh, her sort of relationship with David Yates. If that makes, if that makes sense. Uh, but a poor example. But yeah, he, no, yeah. you're right though. You're completely yeah, right. Yeah, like, the, the obviously there's got to be some sort of um, middle ground there where. Like you know, they, it's not. I think to have free reign would would be a disaster because unless um, the person who's writing the screenplay for it has a similar vision to the author of the book, then there's always going to be some conflicting things. Like the, the person who's writing the screenplay might go, oh I, "Oh, I hated that bit about the movie," or like, "Oh, I wish I, you know, I, I see it more as this." Mm-hmm. Uh, and you know that that would be a discussion. As I'm saying, it depends really again on how. As you just said with J.K. Rowling and David Yates, it depends on the relationship of the person who's planning on making the movie and the person who's um, who's already written the book. If there's a relationship there, then there is room for negotiation. But if you've just taken a, a pure adaptation from the book and not really given the, the original author any thought, then yeah, there's probably there's going to be some problems there and some, some conflict. But I, I, I actually think that conflict though is a good thing like i i'm very much of the opinion that certain stories that will work on the page will not work on screen without heavy adaptation and heavy changes even thematically because the way we tell a story on screen is inherently different to the way that a story is told in any other media purely because of the visual elements we've got we don't need to explain like stephen king's an author who loves a lot of exposition we don't need that for the shining and this ambiguity is one of the things that works best about it like as we've discussed you know what i mean um so i think and it i take it back and this is a, it's, a, it's a very specific and sort of off the track example right george lucas has a draft of episode seven okay because george lucas is the original originator of star wars and the first storyteller is J.J. Abrams tied to the fact that he should take some things from George's script? Does he listen to that script or does he ignore it and do his own thing, which eventually him and Disney decided to do? You know, so it's the question of actually who owns a story. Is it the author? Is it the fans? Or is a story there to be adapted and moulded in any way that a creator would see fit? You know? I don't know. I know what you mean. That's a hard question. I don't think there's really an answer to the question at all. Mm-hmm. I think it's, it's just, a matter of opinion. Just I. It's really just bear in mind. Like if someone reads it and goes, "That sounds like a better story," then you know it'll, it'll filter through fucking hundreds of people. Yeah. Majority of the time, it'll filter through a whole forum of people. And uh, do you know what? If fucking if this other guy's um, if this other guy's story sounds better than George Lucas' original, then yeah. sometimes it is. And like, yeah, it, I don't think it is for George Lucas to own the story, as sad as that sounds. Like, 
Yeah, and then you could say the same thing about any offer. Like J.K. Rowan is one specific example of an offer who I think definitely still owns her story. If you like that makes sense, she's very possessive over the Harry Potter world and stuff. But you know, she had been in that uh, in its beginnings. So yeah, uh, but most other people they don't have that type of uh, privilege. Yeah. You know, so it's an interesting question, but we'll move on from the topic of the shining into sort of the second part of our show. Uh, every week, uh, we talk about the news, the emerging story, the stories that are coming from the world of uh, film and television. Um, and one of the big things to drop this week, Tom Holland uh, sent out a tweet. Someone asked him on Twitter, uh, "When we're we getting a Spider-Man Far From Home trailer?" Uh, he responded, "See what we can do." He then put it on his Instagram. Uh, Tune in to my Instagram story at this time tomorrow and dropped the Spider-Man Far From Home trailer on his Instagram after seemingly talking with Stoney, but it was probably a big advertising uh, ploy. Uh, you just watched the trailer like 40 minutes ago before we started recording. Uh, what was your initial thoughts of it? It looks good, really. Um, it looks good. I didn't see Homecoming, so didn't really, I didn't care for Homecoming, to be honest, even just from Really? I, I didn't like the idea that it was kind of being like, I don't know. I think just because Spider-Man's always been quite... Any other depiction of Spider-Man, he's always been alone in the universe. Like, he's always been... Well, well from ones that I can imagine, or I think, apart from obviously the comic, um, uh, comic depictions, but um, all of his other movies and stuff, he'd always been himself. So to be to see him being mentored like that, and I also don't really like the idea that his abilities are... Like, ha- they have to be, like, manufactured. Well, that's the orig- That's how it is in the original comics yeah. with Stanley. I don't like the idea. That I like. I like the fact that he was bitten, and you know, he has the he has like the spider powers. You know, he still has the senses and like the athleticism and the ability to walk on walls. That's all still the Spider-Man ability. It's just um, specifically the web shooters that are him. Yeah. I like that because we're getting. A bit until homecoming discussion here, but I like that because it sort of shows his intelligence. It shows you that okay, even if he wasn't bitten by this spider, he still was a guy of like really good ability because of his sort of science background. You know what I mean? Oh, so did he, you, uh, did he like he makes he he builds his own web shooters, yeah. But then there's Robert Downey Jr. Um, he gets well, he gets that's part of the story. Like the part of the story is that. He doesn't really need what Iron Man's telling him. Do you know what I mean? Like, I'd, I'd definitely watch Homecoming because I think the issues that you have with it are addressed within the film itself, if that makes sense. Okay, yeah. I just think from watching the trailer, I was just a bit like, oh, I don't know. Yeah. But th- this looks good to you, like, from what you've seen uh, Far From Home. Uh, just because it's a bit different. The settings look different. Obviously, there's a like, bit uh, in Venice for a bit. Um, it's good to see um, some different some different villains too which I'm quite excited about so. oh, I've always like see do you remember the uh, Spider-Man animated show that was on Fox Kids back in the day and it was like it was the Spider-Man animated show and I loved Mysterio in that show I just think he's like such a class villain because he's so different and it's that stupid fucking dome head that he has as well I'm so happy they kept that in. like so buzzing they kept that dome head in man so I was like maybe they hadn't when it really fucking just popped up and and I thought, okay, well, what's going on there? And then I didn't realise who it was until after 
until obviously he's got his fishbowl head. Yeah, you get the shot at the fishbowl head. And obviously we've got we get a lot of Sam Jackson this year. He's in three, maybe four comic book movies because he's out in Glass that comes out tonight. Um, he's in Captain Marvel, obviously we've discussed uh, Deej and stuff. He could be in Avengers Endgame. And now he's showing back up as Nick Fury for maybe the third time this year in Spider-Man Far From Home. So he's got a busy year, but it's a welcome, it was a welcome sight to see him show up in this trailer, I think. Uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know how much of Marvel I've missed um, over the last kind of decade, so. Yeah. Um, fucking, I don't really know what role Nick Fury even has to play, but. Um, so he basically, good. he's the one who put the Avengers together. Initially, he was the director of Shield, like. Uh, so now he's basically he's the puppet master of the Marvel universe when it comes to the heroes. Basically, he can get them to do whatever the fuck he wants. You know what I mean? Like he's like he just comes in. And he's like, I'm the big boss man here. Do this. Do what I'm telling you. I'm going to help you out. Uh, but we also get um, the return of Happy Hogan, uh, John Favreau. Uh, great director, as we've discussed, directing the new Lion King, in charge of the Mandalorian. He plays uh, Tony Stark's head of security. He comes back, flirting with Aunt May. Uh, is Happy Hogan punching above his weight? I think is the key question. <laughs> what with her? Aye. <laughs> what with Aunt May? Yeah, with Marissa Tomei. Aye. I was talking about it earlier. I seen it. In, well, I only really remember an anger management. I used to fancy that. So I was just seeing you there. Aye. Aye, she's class. Like, she's by far my favourite Aunt May. She's just, like, so funny. Aye, she's good. I don't even know who was playing her, but she looks far too young to be, like, anyone's aunt. <laughs> <laughs> That's what Tony Stark says in uh, Civil War to her, the first time he meets her. <laughs> it's good. I like that stuff. And she's his manager now. I like the fact that she knows, because I hate that. I hate in superhero movies where it's like, oh, this person can't find out or they can't know my secret. You know what I mean? I like the fact that Aunt May, she found out at the end of the last film, spoiler alert. It's not like a huge spoiler, but, um, like, and now she's just like, sound with it. She's just like, I'm going to make some money off of this wee orphan. <laughs> and I'm going to, he's going to pull his weight here. You know what I mean? Do all these appearances. Stop fucking me, spider bastard. <laughs> exactly, it's so good, it's so good. Uh, and also, the other thing I want to say, I love that music. Like, it's the original Spider-Man music, but, like, this orchestral arrangement, which I think is, is absolutely fantastic. Like, uh, that, gives, that gives me chills. That's the type of film score that I think is, like, can give you, can make you feel something, you know what I mean? And the fact that it's the original Spider-Man music as well is a really good sort of nostalgic beat to have, you know? So I'm excited about that. We'll move on. Uh, Uncharted, uh, the video game. Uh, people have been, and speaking of Tom Holland, he's actually been attached to this project uh, to play a young Nathan Drake in the Uncharted movie. But a new director uh, was attached this week. Uh, our old pal Neil Berger was attached years ago to helm this film after the success of Limitless dropped out. Another director was attached until recently uh, and then dropped out again. And now Dan Trachenberg, uh, of 10 Cloverfield Lane fame uh, has was announced the other day uh, to be helming this project. Um, you're a bigger video game fan than I am and have played more games. What do you know about Uncharted? Do you think it's right for an adaption? And what do you think about Traction Bird specifically uh, coming on to the project? Oh no, it's not. Uncharted um, is Naughty Dog. It's made by Naughty Dog, which is um, normally a very story-based um, action-based, very cinematic kind of movies. Um, loads and loads of cutscenes, like well, sm well, small cutscenes, but like loads of them. Mm -hmm. um, 
it's that kind of idea where you're sort of playing out a story. You're not. I mean, I don't know. It's, it's obviously a game, so there's loads and there's loads of gameplay up until a point. If that makes sense, so like you're always like trying to get over to the next check- checkpoint, and then when you get the checkpoint, it's like a cutscene. Yeah, it's shot like a movie rather than shot like. Um, and then, then you kind of like resume into it, uh, and it's always it's always quite a nice uh, transition from like a cutscene into. A, so I think that's something that Naughty Dog always done really well, and I've only ever really played The Last of Us, um, which I'm gutted about, and that's my kind of main argument would be that I don't understand why there's an Uncharted movie before there's a uh, The Last of Us movie because I thought that well, I was under the impression that The Last of Us had uh, far more acclaim than the Uncharted series. Is Uncharted maybe a more marketable story though because it could be sold to families more than Last of Us could, which is a bit heavier. I think I think to be honest, the both of them, uh, both Uncharted and The Last of Us, are sort of game adaptations to like as well. Maybe not movies that have already been made, but if I think of The Last of Us, it's very very similar to maybe fucking like World War Z or something like that. World War Z. World War Z combined with Logan. Yeah, well, yeah, with hints of Logan. Um, Uncharted is sort of a Indiana Jones. But there's something else in there. There's another sort of combination. Yeah, uh, national treasure. <laughs> maybe not. Nah, maybe that's a wee bit too PG. Oh, right, uh, okay. uh, it's something more like dramatic than that. We'll, we'll and go with Indiana Jones. Go with Indiana Jones. Definitely King Kong. Yeah, James Cameron. Um, we buy that as well. Uh, but anyway, I think I think it'll be good. I think it'll be. Like, Fairly, I don't really know too much about director either, so it really depends on his. You, you've seen Clover Food Lane, and we had, I think, we both had the same issue with that, but I think that's to do with the script. Uh, I, I think, I think that was well shot. I think it was well shot, and it was actually a really good movie up until, well, maybe, maybe not a really good movie. That's a bit, a bit too. too I'd, I'd agree with you. I was all in for it. I think it was. I, was I was enjoying it for the most part up until. Um, yeah, maybe the last 10, 15 minutes, and I was just like, fuck. And then even the decision that's made right at the end as well, I was like, it just doesn't really make sense. Yeah, it's like too, uh, don't want to spoil 10th Cloverfield Lane, but her deciding to go and help out and <laughs> uh, defeat the monsters. After everything she's just been through and that, you'd think like, nah, you wouldn't. You would just be like, nah, I get to fuck. Yeah, I think it's the idea you can't run from your problems, like you're always sort of going to be trapped by them. So it's better to try and fight than to uh, sort of hide. You know what I mean? It's maybe one of the lessons you learn from John Goodman. But I hope, uh, I hope in the, the sequel she, she dies, because it's a terrible decision. And I think she should die for it. Yeah, well, Cloverfield is an interesting one. We could discuss that later on, but I, d- I don't think she'll be back as that character, to be honest. She's, she signed up to play... Huntress and uh, the oh, what's it called? It's the new Harley Quinn movie uh, with the Birds of Prey. So it's Huntress, Black Canary, uh, Batgirl, Catwoman, all those sort of characters. So she's going to be playing Huntress in that movie. So uh, she's going she's going to be busy. Um, one last story we wanted to talk about, uh, and it's one I think you'll be very excited about. Is the Hunchback in Notre Dame live action movie's been announced, no word yet on if it's going to be a cinematic release or if it's going to be p- 
put onto the Disney streaming service, which obviously we've talked about a lot much later this year. Uh, however, the big new news that came out about it this week is that it's going to be produced by none other than Disney's favourite actor, Josh Gad. Uh, so what do you make? Obviously, I think we've discussed before how you're a fan of Josh Gad, even his work in theatre, uh, not so much as his work in the big screen. Uh, What's your thoughts on Josh Gad being in this in a producing role? And could you see him stepping maybe into the shoes of Quasimodo himself and playing that part? Uh, actually, not even something I'd thought about. I never even really, never, I never knew you were going to ask that question, but not until now had I even thought that he would play Quasimodo. I don't even know who would play Quasimodo. And I think your your discussion on Twitter that I seen earlier on, uh, I remember seeing, seeing someone say something about like an able-bodied, play, an able-bodied person playing like the Hunchback. Yeah. I mean, I don't know, like, um, it really comes down to like what what he's got he's, he's at in his arsenal, do you know what I mean? I don't know what Josh Gad's got from a, a, um, a production side of things. Yeah. Uh, He's done. He's got f- uh, fucking tons of experience, and not just film, but like in theatre, as you were saying. Mm-hmm. So, you know, he knows his stuff. He knows Book of Mormon and stuff specifically, uh, even though I've not seen it. Uh, I've heard good things about it. And he's working yeah. that. Um, yeah. It's actually really comical, Book of Mormon. So it'll be interesting to see if if there's a comical um, aspect in this. Would you like that though? I really hope there's not. Like, cause I like it's funny, but like it's it's really. Exp- it's really Classic comedy and book a moment like it's just right. fucking, it's just so, so racist, so like um, homo- uh, homophobic. Like it's just, it's, it's just against everything. But not, not against it. It's like making them everything. Right, it's uh, making them. It's because uh, it's making it's yeah. Because the Mormons are sort of the isolated society, and so I'd actually, I really like to see the play. Fucking uh, brilliant, mate. You would, you would really enjoy it. But um, my back to Josh Gad, I think. Um, He's had uh, he's had tons of experience and stuff, so he's he's really got um, a nice palette to play with. But I don't know, I don't know. It's still kind of early doors with the movie, I think. So yeah, like the more we can sort of gauge what's going on, because just an announcement of one man, you know, in a role doesn't really give you too much. Not even a role, the sort of producer, yeah, behind the scenes, yeah, exactly. Um, so you don't really know how much of a, of a grip he's going to have on the movie or even an influence on the movie. I think that the key things to note here are that it sort of continues Josh Gad's great working relationship with Disney. And not only was he very popular as the voice of Olaf and Frozen, we're getting Frozen 2 later this year, he reprised his role. Obviously he played LeFou in Beauty and the Beast, the live action adaptation. And it also, people don't know a lot about this, but he's been a moderator a lot of the time at the sort of Star Wars panels for Star Wars Celebration. He's a huge Star Wars guy. So I wouldn't be surprised to see him maybe in a Star Wars film later down the line or something like that. Um, but it sort of produ- uh, continues to work in relationship there. The one thing that I'm concerned about with this movie is what you're talking about, the comedy, because I think the reason that I really like the animated version of Hunchback in Notre Dame is how it feels a hell of a lot darker, more serious, and more grounded than sort of any sure. other Disney movie from that era. 100%. I think there'll be a comic last night. With more, with like particular characters though. The goat. Uh, what? I think they'll feature the goat a bit more heavily as Manel does goat. Goat? Oh, do you think the goat will talk? <laughs> Josh Cad could be the goat. Fuck off, nah. I don't, if it's live action, it's. <laughs> that would be like. 
I don't know that. That's like live. Going live. Oh wait, 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 wait. Right, this makes a hell of a lot more sense. This makes more sense. Josh Gad's playing one of the gargoyles. I was say, uh, do more like to put a gargoyle. I forgot about that. Anything else? As we fat gargoyle, so you could do that no bother. He's definitely that. That's that's what he is, isn't it? That's that's who he is. That is like, um, also, you've got the. Oh, I always fucking forget his name. Wait a minute. Uh, would that be all right, or do we need to cast an actual gargoyle in that part? What? I don't. I wouldn't want to offend anyone by casting someone who's not a gargoyle. <laughs> Sorry, that's a bit dismissive. Like the argument you alluded to, the thing I said in Twitter, and someone had said, "Oh, I don't want this unless it's going to be uh, a." a Romanian woman uh, playing Esmeralda, or if it's an able-bodied person uh, playing Quasimodo, and the argument I have to that is like I'm the one who's written, like taking the time to write a full blog about uh, representation in film. I'm saying we need to have a variety of characters on screen. People need more equal opportunities in the workplace. We need to get more people in for auditions and casting. That's completely all right. <laughs> what is it? This has become a manifesto. It once was just a tweet, and now you're pure. No, but I believe in all that firmly. You know, I'm very passionate about it. Uh, but, but, you can't pick at absolutely every form of an actor being cast in a film, and just complain when, because then the process of acting is gone. Like Quasimodo is an extremely deformed human being. Do you know how hard it's going to be to get an actor who looks exactly like Quasimodo as an actual hunchback? Do you want him to be French as well? Like, like it, it boggles my mind. Like, you're, Acting is about trying to get yourself in the position of an art human being and to portray that. The success of a failure of an actor doing that can be discussed a later time after you've seen the performance. However... Right you can't judge someone right off the bat because they didn't share the same experience. Like, I talked about the film I wrote about in my blog was Love, Simon, the guy who played Simon in that movie. It was not gay, you know what I mean? But did he portray, uh, or did he get across the experience of Simon, the character in that film, extremely well? Yes, I think it was one of the more underrated performances uh, from 2018 that I saw, you know? So there needs to be a middle ground with these sort of things. Yes, we need more opportunities for people in film, but I'm sick of this party line with every casting, um, that it needs to be completely, the the experience of the actor must match the the real life experience of the character. Because I think for one thing, it's unrealistic. For Mm. two, it's going to actually decrease the quality of the films we see because you're looking at a much smaller pool of actors to play the part um, and see I just don't think that's what acting is you know I, that was the that was the main thing of, of your tweet that that I agreed with I was like I it completely takes away what acting is mm-hmm. if, you're, if you're placing people into characters that they share experiences with or look like or do you know what I mean obviously look like is different but like, if you're trying to get the perfect person to play it because they've had the same experiences and whatever else, then, yeah, it's not acting because they're, they're, they're just reliving it. Yeah. <laughs> In front of a screen, really, like, as, as blase as that sounds. But, like, yeah, that's the thing I, I would agree with, I think. Just, it completely negates um, the whole idea of, of portraying someone else. Yeah. Portraying someone else's experiences. And if, like, I think you would then have to, like, not if, if you were going to rate something out of ten, if I was to rate, you know, um, let's take, let's take 
like uh, Hamilton as an example. Actually, like if I was to take Lin Manuel Miranda to play Alexander Hamilton, yeah, let's do actually, let's do um, uh, what was his name? Christopher, fuck, the guy who played uh, Lafayette. Uh, no, George Washington. Ah, uh, Washington. He was great in the London version. We saw George Washington's white, right? Mm-hmm. White supremacist, actually. Yeah. Um, and he's been played by a black man, you know. And uh, and then for me, I'm gonna give him a ten out of ten for his performance. But then if I if I get a white man to play him in a movie or something like who, you know, whatever, uh, do we, do you not need to take points off him, you know? Because he's he's actually. Had the experiences, let's say, he's had the experiences of whatever. Do you know what I mean? I feel like you would well, have to. Do. Yeah, I think it's more. I think you 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 boil it down to the the simple point of it's either a good performance or it's not a good performance. We don't need to, the when we're talking about the Prince biopic that's coming out. We don't need someone who looks exactly like Prince to play the part of Prince. You know what I mean? We just need them to sort of capture that essence and do a good performance. It was the same with Rami Malek in the Queen movie. I kind of wish they hadn't put the stupid teeth on him. You know what I mean? For the prosthetics, because uh, they were just trying to make him look more like Freddie Mercury. You know. Uh, so my dog's whining here. He clearly agrees with the points we're making. He's like, he's going out a walk. So we'll wrap things up there. Unless you have anything else. In fact, who would you cast as Esmeralda or Quasimodo? What's his name? Oh my god, I've forgotten all the characters' names in, in this film. Um, oh, Rolo. Um, Fro? Uh, see, Rolo was always a, a character that intrigued me and always like someone that if it if there was a live action made, like who would you cast in that for him? Up until his death, you know, uh, it was always Alan Rickman. Mm-hmm. But Charles Dance was always in the back burners, and that would be an interesting cast. For a Charles Dance is as uh, Count Frollo would be absolutely fantastic. I think um, I want to know if yeah. he can sing. He obviously, has the stage experience, but Charles Dance would be very good at that part. Um, I'm not sure who our cast is. I wouldn't even. I wouldn't know where to begin. Uh, I think there would be. It's a tough one, isn't it? I don't know. I don't know. Do you know who I wouldn't mind is Quasimodo? Do you know the guy who plays Thorman Giants Bane on Game of Thrones? Uh, Try to remember. Thorman, the ginger guy who likes Bane. Sorry, uh, yeah. Yeah, I think he'd be good Quasimodo. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Well, anyway. But well, then it kind of absolutely falls into like what we were just discussing. Someone who you, you wouldn't have ever even pictured as. Yeah. That makes sense. I don't know if maybe you have pictured them, but obviously. Like, I was just thinking they of a ginger actor and he's European, so kind of fits, you know. <laughs> he's sweet. Who isn't even like, doesn't need to be that ginger. Yeah, I know. I know. Like, but, just like, Disney have just coloured his hair in red for some reason, but. Yeah. Well, anyway, we'll wrap up the discussion there. Um because I need to go to uni now. So <laughs> thank you for joining us this week on First Time Films. Uh, did you have a good time? What's that? I missed, I missed what you said there, what? Oh, did you enjoy yourself this week? I enjoyed myself, I it was good. Yeah. Uh, that's what was fun. Really, really serious conversation we had. There wasn't much laughing. I think that's often happens when there's just two years. Yeah, well, I'm just, I'm just not funny apparently then. <laughs> I'm just not a funny guy. Uh, it's a serious discussion. We're talking about The Shining as well, though. You know what I mean? 
Like, it's, it's one of those serious films. However, next time, it's not a serious film at all. Next time, I might actually get drunk for doing it because it's Fast and Furious 5. <laughs> Fast and Furious 5 is our next film. <laughs> this should be a fun one. And we're joined, Nikki should be back with us in Ross McLeod uh, from the Eat Sleep Superlix Retweet podcast. We'll be coming on to give us his uh, expertise on the people's champ, The Rock, who will be discussing at length in our next episode. I can't wait for it. I'm buzzing. <laughs> I, I can't wait. I... <laughs> <You're touchable. laughs> I love how down in this you are already. Anyway, we'll see you next time. Thanks for tuning in. I had absolutely no idea that was, that was on the agenda, on the menu. Oh, well. <laughs> see you later. <laughs> Thank you.